0: What would you do if you knew you were going to die, or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are, and you do. No mai harimai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toko Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titohi the top of Aotearoa New Zealand's South Island and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme. So big thanks to them! And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. And thank you for joining me for episode three of season two of Death Walker's Guide to Life. Coming up on today's show, I'll be speaking with Tanya Batt, who recently toured her show "Toby or Not to Be: Stories of Death and Dying" around the country, finishing up in Fakatū, Nelson, on Saturday, April eight. COVID had disrupted her original tour plans, and it might feel a bit back to front to be interviewing someone after their tour has ended. But lucky for you listeners out there, Tanya has a fabulous website where you can access all of her Toby or Not To Be stories, or buy a copy of the CD, which I will tell you more about later. And before I kōrero with Tanya, it's time for our first bookend, Death in Print. Today I'd like to introduce you to a small book with something big to say. The book is called An Hour to Live, An Hour to Love, and it's written by Richard Carlson. You may know Richard Carlson as the author of Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff, simple ways to keep the little things from taking over your life, which was published in 1997 and spent two years on USA Today's bestseller list. An Hour to Live, An Hour to Love is a small book, and it sits on my bookshelf alongside Richard Bach's equally small books, Illusions, The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah, one, and Jonathan Livingston Seagull. However, while Bach's mini-novellas were only ever semi-autobiographical, Carlson's small book is a true story. Actually, it's a letter he wrote to his wife Christine Carlson, which he presented to her on their 18th wedding anniversary. Seven years later in 2006, after he died suddenly at the age of only 45, Christine poured through 25 years of love letters from him, But this anniversary letter stood out. And I'd just like to read a tiny little bit from Christine's introduction. How poignant and powerful his message is now. Three years later, during the most sorrow-filled moments of my life, as I grieve his premature death and the loss of my true love, and the plans that we had for our future together that will never happen. I remember his letter to me. The best gift ever given. All the Tiffany pouches and other beautiful things that money can buy Hale in comparison to the evident love that leaps from these pages. There is one thing that I know with every breath and every fibre of my being, and it is that love is truly eternal and lasts forever. It is the core of our connection and expression of life. It is where Richard will remain pure and alive. I am united with him for all time. This gift holds the power of hope and comfort for me and our daughters as we grieve his loss and step into a new life. The letter Richard wrote to her opens as follows. I've always believed that when reflecting on a life worth living, in which you are going to cherish every step along the way, it's a good idea to jump ahead and look back. This is a great way to get immediate and accurate perspective about what's really important right now. My absolute favourite quotation is from author Stephen Levine. He says... If you had an hour to live and could make just one phone call, who would it be to? What would you say? And why are you waiting? So he then goes on to talk about, answer that question, those two questions, three questions perhaps. An hour to live, an hour to love is a powerful reminder to treasure each day as an incredible gift. I wasn't actually planning to tell you about this book, but it figuratively jumped off my bookshelf when I was prepping for today's show. Even more profound, it was only a few hours after I'd driven home from a memorial service in Golden Bay to celebrate the life of Judith Hoke, an American author, artist, anthropologist, spiritualist, teacher, environmentalist, and for the past 20 years or so, custodian with her husband John of a very special piece of land in Wainui Bay. Like Richard Carlson, Judith passed away suddenly. At the celebration of her life, which was held at the Pujaro Boat Club, I learned that Judith's last words for her brother had been, keep having fun, and that she very much embraced the philosophy of living each day to the full because you never know when tomorrow will be your last. As a celebrant, Laura Manson made her closing remarks and said her final goodbyes to Judith. A candle she'd lit earlier in honour of all the ancestors who had walked before Judith started sizzling and extinguished itself, and a trail of smoke wafted towards the celebrant. It was a pretty remarkable moment. An Hour to Live, An Hour to Love was published posthumously in 2008 with an introduction by Richard Carlson's wife, Christine. Like Carlson, Judith has also left a body of unpublished writing. Hopefully it may one day make its way out into the world. Richard Bach, the other Richard, by the way, is still alive and 85 years old. Jonathan Livingston Seagull has sold more than 40 million copies since it was first published. And in 2014, Richard Bach published what is to date his last book, a sequel to Illusions, The Adventures of a Reluctant Messiah, which he called Illusions 2, The Adventures of a Reluctant Student. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Coming up, I'll be talking with Tanya Batt. It's time to welcome my guest on today's show. Tanya Bat is a storyteller, educator, gardener, collaborator, author, and podcaster. Over the past 30 years, she has shared her mahi or work in as many countries as those number of years to both adults and Tamariki children. A very special young man called Toby inspired her latest show, a collaboration with her partner, musician Peter Forster. Kia ora, Tanya, and welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Kia ora, Kerry. Before we talk about your latest show, I'd like to go right back to the beginning of your story and ask you about your very first memory of death.
1: Mm, My very first memory of death. Well, in terms of somebody significant dying in my life, that was one of my grandparents, my daddy Willis. He died when I was 10 years old, and he's the first person who I can remember dying. There were other relatives who died before then. Uh, my grandpa Jack, but I don't really remember um, having emotions or memories connected with those deaths. I was just probably too young, so they're kind of just historic facts. But I remember Daddy Willis dying because I can remember that we weren't allowed to go to the funeral as children. Uh, so, you know, he was alive and then he was dead, and then that was it, really. Uh, and there was n- none of that um, partaking in the ritual of closure. So that's probably my first memory of the death of someone significant in my life.
0: And at that age, when you weren't allowed to go to the funeral, can you remember how that made you feel, that you couldn't go? I
1: remember feeling, you know, I was simply, cl- I was told that, you know, children didn't go to funerals, um, but I kind of felt left out, um, you know, I think I realise now, you know, and for many of us, it's really, I think, come home over the last couple of years with COVID where we've been unable to attend the the funerals, the final um, goodbyes to friends and family, how important those those rituals are to mm. create closure. And so I, I do remember as a child feeling like, you know, I would have liked to have gone, but that wasn't, it wasn't a choice. So it wasn't like I was offered that choice,
0: yeah. Mm. I had a very similar experience, a little bit older. I was 13 when my uh, paternal grandmother died and likewise wasn't – I can't remember actually if I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral or I wasn't allowed to go to the crematorium afterwards, but I, it, it planted a seed of indignation in me. <laughs> that until i sort of worked through it in my writing i took a long time to to sort of come to terms with so that kind of leads a li- little bit on to well i'm just going to jump in to ask you know about the environment how death and dying in in your co- culture as you were growing up you know any reflections on ha- how that influenced the work you do today is it because you wanted to do it differently to the way you were brought up as a child when when it comes to death and dying that is not all aspects of being brought up
1: <laughs> yeah yeah i i'm not sure if there was a conscious connection between my own experience as a child and uh the intention behind creating this piece but no doubt um these things actually inform um our decision making or at some level you know that we might not have an awareness of um the very fact that this piece arose from a conversation with a child really resonates with my, with my own experience, having that opportunity to have those conversations. I think, you know, in many ways when you're a child, I mean, I mean, of course, things are dying around you all the time. Um, you know, pets, um, you know, things in the natural environment. So now as an um, an adult who has spent a lot of time working with Tamariki, I, you know, there have been lots of conversations um, about children observing life coming to the end of something uh, and someone, but uh, in kind of more ordinary ways as well as kind of significant deaths in children's lives.
0: And how, know. in your experience of working with Tamariki, have do children naturally respond to death before adults, or and or our society's hang-ups? get or you know. Phobias get in the way of, of the uh, mm. response.
1: When uh, you know, when a child has a close connection to um, a person and uh, or you know a pet who has died, just like us all, oh, there is that natural response of grief. Mm. But there's also a curiosity uh, that comes with um, with children. Uh, an uncensored curiosity, I think, in many ways. They are um, not um, feeling like they shouldn't ask certain questions. They're asking the questions that naturally arise in them, like, you know, you know, what has happened to, you know, my, my cat and where will they go to and, you know, will I see them again and, you know, what will happen when we put the body in the ground? And so there's kind of a natural curiosity that isn't...
0: Um, it isn't fenced by kind of fear or cultural norms. Mm. Mm. That leads beautifully onto my next question, which is I'd love to hear a little bit about the backstory for Toby or not to be. So tell us about Toby and, and how you first started having these wonderful conversations with him that um, led to the development of the show.
1: Yes. Well, Toby is now um, a young man. He is, will be 14 years old this year but when I had these series of conversations with Toby, he was living next door to me here uh, on Waiheke Island uh, at the eco-village where I live at Awa Awaroa. And he was four years old. And we spent a lot of time with each other. We kind of, uh, you know, as I said, I've worked with a lot of children in my time. I mean, Toby was in close proximity. His family and I bought a share together on the eco-village. But there's just just like, you know, as adults, we snap with other some, some other adults Toby and I just snapped together as two humans, really, and um, we actually just enjoyed each other's company. Toby is a very – well, my impression of Toby is that he is a very thoughtful, um, contemplative person and has been ever since he was quite young. And he loved stories, so uh, he could very easily – you know, which is something that doesn't happen so often – uh in the way that our communities are designed now he could just wander um across the land because our homes were in very close proximity to each other and just come and visit me um and so he was often around and you know we talked about all sorts of things and because he was a curious child and an observant child we talked about all sorts of interesting things and this conversation started one day when we were making a birthday card for a, a young friend of his we were going to his birthday party and uh we just finished making the card and toby wanted to make a card for himself and this is actually you know in in the show and i said well we could but you know it's actually not your birthday for a, a very long time but um you know it's somebody's birthday today you know we can <laughs> just make a card a birthday card for all those people in the world having a birthday and uh, he was quite struck by like that as you are when you are um four because you know, to some degree, we all remain the centre of our universes, but that is even more evident when we're four. And so the only real birthday that really matters is your own when you're four. And uh, <laughs> the, the idea that other people should be having birthdays and every day, and, you know, lots of them. Um, and I, I kind of said, yeah, well, yeah, lots of people are born every day and lots of people die every day. You know, there's just – it's kind of like a big door that's just constantly going, you know, people coming in and out of. And uh, he was – very wanting to really kind of fix down um, the particulars of who was going to be dying and where were they going to be dying and uh, yeah Mm -hmm. so that is how that conversation started and once that conversation began it kind of continued over you know a few weeks Uh, not all the time it was very, it was very casual. You know, it wasn't sort of like let's sit down and you know have <laughs> the talk about what we often do with you know subjects that we you know might find a little bit difficult. It just naturally arose in our conversation, and uh, I was very mindful about letting Toby's parents know that um, we'd had those conversations as well. Um, but you know, that then it wasn't because uh that was normal you know i you know often talk to them about conversations that toby and i had together um so that you know they had some understanding of the context of things that might arise in their conversation with toby
0: Mm. Mm. lovely on your website you mentioned that over the last 30 years there have been numerous pieces of research investigating how death awareness affects how we live our lives how research has found that opportunities to deeply contemplate our finite existence can result in profound changes in the way we see the world and how we live. This is um, also the premise of this show, Death Walker's Guide to Life, but it is also a particularly strong theme in today's show. So can you tell me how death awareness has changed how you live your life?
1: Yeah, well, for me, I have a, a very strong uh, Buddhist influence and that appears from time to time. Well, it, it's there in the actual papa of the show, but it appears from time to time in as a reference in the show. And, you know, one of the things that um, sort of puzzled me a little about Buddhism when I first came across it uh, and one of the criticisms that's often made of Buddhism and, you know, I'm kind of using it in a generic sense is this kind of preoccupation with death, because one of the things that always sticks in my mind is this notion that we should meditate on our on our deaths every day. People are like, oh, really? Every day? <laughs> <laughs> Not when we just go, you know, to farewell people at their funerals or at their tangi. Hmm. Uh, and I thought about this a lot, but then I realised that, you know, when you have those opportunities, and often when we do go um, to farewell someone, or we have the death of someone close nearby us or even the experience of somebody that we love receiving news that they're not well in a way that's kind of significantly not well suddenly you realize that this foreverness that we often operate in uh, in the mm-hmm. sense that we have this time that we're going to have you know endless amounts of time suddenly comes into sharp focus and you're like oh well you know they might not be here tomorrow i might not be here tomorrow and how, how do I want to be in this moment if, you know, this is it? Uh, and so for me, I think the real challenge for me, and I, I think I can, well, I'm going to just say for others as well, is how to maintain that awareness of, um, you know, really valuing the, the moments that we have with each other and the moments that we have, you know, in this world, um because the awareness that it is finite does greatly enhance your appreciation (laughs) of it yeah
0: i just have to show you the book that i've talked about in today's show i'm showing everyone um (laughs) showing tanya the cover of an hour to live an hour to love which i don't know if you've seen this little book but it's a, a letter from richard carlson to his wife which she finds three years after he dies suddenly and Um, It's his meditation on how he's going to live his life, knowing that any day might be his his last. Mm. So tell us more about the research that went into your show, Toby or Not To Be. Which stories did you already know and how did you discover those that you you didn't know? (laughs) And then what did the research and writing process look like?
1: Well, as a result of having those conversations with Toby and because I'm a storyteller and I naturally um, responded to his questions with stories, both told stories and picture books. And again, this is talked about in the show. Um, I started to think, well, wow, this is, you know, because it was the, the whole experience of having those conversations for, for, with Toby was as beneficial to me as possibly it was to Toby. Um, you know, I can only really speak for myself. I guess I'm not, you know, how Toby made sense of that all, um, all those years ago. I, you know, can only guess. Um, but I started to think, well, wow, this would be great to actually use stories um, as a way of having conversations um, about death and dying, and uh, without waiting for that opportunity of of loss when you know we do lose people. Um, in our community, people that we love. Um, And often, you know, we do talk um, during those times, but often it's quite difficult to talk because grief can be so overwhelming. Um, So kind of to kind of invite, as you do with the storyteller, invite, um, you know, the subject of death um, into ordinary conversation.
0: Mm. Mm. And the great thing about that, I think, is that it means that, those sorts of stories can lead to conversations about, well, what do I want to happen, you know, after I die? And and people can have those conversations when they're still healthy and well. It's much easier mm-hmm. than waiting till, like you say, those really tricky, difficult times when somebody's close to dying and it's it's much harder <laughs> to have yeah. them then. Yeah. And so, what, so a lot of the stories you um, have included in the show and on the CT and that are available on your website are... I understand uh, stories that have come down through different cultures, you know, probably oral storytelling traditions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How how did you find all those remarkable ones?
1: Um, Yeah, so most of the, uh, there's the actual narrative of the conversations with Toby, and then Mm -hmm. there are 10 traditional stories that we retell uh, in the course of sharing the program. And, you know, I've always felt very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with traditional stories because in many ways, traditional stories are distilled human wisdom. And of course, every culture tells stories about death because it's a fundamental human experience. In fact, it may be a site, you know, life and death are the fundamental human experiences. Um, so I had always been quite interested in stories about death and dying because, you know, death is the great human mystery. Uh, you know watch. you know what happens to us when we die uh, and humans have thought about this for a very long time and it informs all kinds of human behavior and values and cultures and how we live our lives so some of the stories I already uh, knew and I kind of looked at the kind of questions that Toby was asking me about you know um, you know, can do we have to die? You know, um, when when am I going to die? Um, and I looked for stories that kind of responded to that particular type of question. So there were a lot of stories. There are a lot more stories, uh, and most of my um, story uh, research is is based in books. It's based in research, looking on the internet um i've been fortunate um in some occasions to actually be handed on stories in oral transmission but that's kind of unusual in this day and age most of our books uh, most of our stories have now uh, been recorded into books so um yeah I, i just basically collected together all these stories that uh kind of address the subject of death and dying and there are questions that you know I don't really deal with the afterlife uh in terms of because that's just such a huge topic in itself and there's so many different ideas about you know what happens to us when we die is there an afterlife um and there were some really great stories that I really loved that just didn't kind of make the final cut um A hilarious story about uh how humans when they used to die they only die for a few days uh kind of like a little rest period and then they would come back into their bodies but there was a man who had a a particularly vocal wife who was quite naggy and when he died he kind of decided he just kind of eke out his uh it's time out (laughs) and kind of dawdled coming back and when he came back she was like no you know where have you been everyone else has only gone for three days and you were gone for eight and i've been waiting and i've been worried (laughs) and uh kind of grabbed him and shook him and his body his spirit wasn't kind of properly settled into his body only having just arrived and kind of shook his spirit out and from that day on people when they died they just died um Wow. I thought it was quite, yeah. quite a funny story um, because sometimes I can recognise that kind of nagging voice in myself. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so many. What culture um,
0: was that out of curiosity? I am it? just trying yeah. to
1: actually remember yeah. what culture that story was out of, but uh, I could look it up. But Because um, it seems
0: to be, you know, maybe the origins of, of the resurrection story. Who knows? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, there's, you know, there are thematic ideas that reoccur in these stories um because you know there is a shared f- finality about death in terms of our physical self um so you know and so there are always stories like about you know how, can you outsmart death you know there's lots of stories across cultures about you know characters who try to outsmart death and of course um, you know, invariably, they're not successful in the long run, even if they're successful in the short run, there is this kind of acknowledgement that, you know, in the end. Uh, but the, one of my favourite stories, the the stone story, uh, which is kind of a, um, that's a Nuppe story from a group of people from sort of the sort of central eastern part of northern Africa, um, that talks about why it is that we die and how basically most life chose to be able to reproduce itself and, and and rocks weren't able to reproduce themselves um, because they chose uh, their immortality over actually having, having children. Um, And I I have two fathers who are geologists. uh, So, I kind of resonate with that story because a lot of my life has been about rocks and looking at them. Um, But at the same time, you know, traditional stories are not always meant to be um, understood literally. And this is one of the challenges that we have with engaging with traditional material because we live in a very literal world rather than a metaphoric world. And so I've had these discussions with my geologist fathers about whether, you know, of course, rocks don't live forever. They have a beginning and an end as well. And they were formed. Um, but read metaphorically it's speaking to the choices that we make and that all choices have consequence and you can't have life without death you know and children understand that story when they hear it because they know if we just kept reproducing ourselves um without there being any of us that died that there just wouldn't be any room on our planet our resources couldn't have coped with all the millions and millions and millions of people who've been born in mm-hmm. the 40,000 years of human existence yeah.
0: Yeah, I remember that show. That story is quite early in the show, and it was one of my first aha moments. And I really loved it when you kind of speculated, maybe that's why we put stones and rocks on on the graves of our of our mm. dead people. I love that, <laughs> and I and you do that a few times throughout the show where you you kind of tie that metaphorical significance into um, something that we do practically in the way yeah. we, we respond to death and dying, which is really awesome. Now, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm curious because it is one of the big questions and I, I kind of have been asking my guests on the show, what do you have any beliefs about the afterlife? I mean, I don't want you to go into a big spiel about it, but yeah, do, do you have your own personal beliefs about what happens or are you, are you just curious about the mystery?
1: Well, I'm curious. I'm definitely curious and I share that curiosity with every other human who's mm-hmm. kind of been and come and gone. Um Yeah, I don't think I could say conclusively. And I know, you know, some people have very strong and, um, you know, affirmed for themselves beliefs and beliefs in what happens to them after they physically die. And you know, in some ways I can see and possibly even envy the comfort that comes from that certainty because, you know, one of the things we really struggle with as humans is living with uncertainty, uh, which has been really highlighted the last couple of years with the very uncertain. The world's always been uncertain, but that kind of awareness of that uncertainty has really come sharply into focus. I had an experience when I was a teenager, which actually brought me a lot of comfort, though. And in short, that experience was momentarily and completely accidentally and I was reminded about that quality of accidental the other day when I was listening to somebody else um, speculating about the nature of of spirit and spiritual experiences and they quoted someone who I cannot remember and they said that you know basically spiritual experiences are often accidental and spiritual practices make us more spiritual uh, accident prone So it's a lovely, lovely Mm -hmm. idea. So my my own experience as a teenager was very accidental. I was um, enamored with some trees uh, that were near where I lived. And I had the experience of basically falling into, well, that's not even the right expression, but I stopped my experience of who I was as a finite being stopped um, ending here at the end of my skin and i had the experience momentarily of being everything except that i I, it wasn't a me anymore and that experience has informed lots of of my understanding and um my perspectives as an adult you know moving through my life and and has brought me great comfort that there is something bigger than this finite self that i'm experiencing
0: yeah yeah and more. Yes, I can really relate to that. The connection with the natural world has done that mm. very much for me too. Um, coming back to the show, um, just I'm curious about the writing and, re- and process. Uh, do you sit there and write the stories and then and then that refine them in the telling, in, in the rehearsal process, or do you just dive, you, you get to know the story and do you dive in and have a go at performing straight away? Um, yeah, mm. I'm, I'm just really, as a fellow writer, very curious about that process.
1: Yeah, well, this was quite a convoluted process. Initially, when I had the idea that using stories to create a platform for having conversations, I thought, I'll I'll do a written piece. And I tried to get funding for that, and that didn't happen. Um, And then I thought, well, you know, I can, I'm a storyteller. I can just craft something and, and perform it. And then the musician who I'd worked with for many many years, Craig Denham, had gone to base himself in Europe, and so I was like, you know, I I think um, I was very used to working with someone musically, and I think it enriches and just brings a wonderful depth um, uh, to through the storytelling so I said about finding another musician which <laughs> ended up being my husband I always say you know basically you know they say death do, does us until death do us part but you know death brought Pete and I together we weren't in a relationship um, but I knew that he had been interested in creating music to play to people in in the process of dying so we started meeting together and just working on stories initially just um, stories that I thought, uh, actually, uh, the first story we started working on was the opening story uh, of Moon and Spider. And just playing around with it, really. I mean, that's often, certainly in terms of a musical elaboration, how that takes place. You kind of just play, really. And like all creation, there's a lot of argy bargy. Uh, it's kind <laughs> of like, Arr! you know, there's a lot of smashing and crashing, and sometimes, you know, amazing things happen, and sometimes it's just chaotic. Uh, but the the actual piece got kind of put on the back burner because as a result of working together, Pete and I ended up in a relationship together and all of that took over. And it was actually um, really thanks to COVID. So there's one of the silver clouds of COVID when we were able to actually perform and tour that i said to pete let's finish that project because it's a really important project to me and i've been trying to actually make it happen now for quite a few years and we're not going anywhere and prior to COVID, we had met with a sound engineer called um, lloyd Canham, and asked him if he would be prepared to uh, work with us he's was a very talented um, sound engineer who's worked across the industry in New Zealand and overseas and fortunately lived here on Waiheke Island. And he'd agreed to, which was quite significant because Lloyd himself was had been diagnosed with cancer at that point and um, you know, his, his his diagnosis was a terminal diagnosis. So it was incredibly generous of him to give us that time to work on this piece and very poignant, the whole piece. Uh But that created some constraints and it also kind of changed the order in which things would happen. So usually, you know, I had the stories crafting the narrative together. There is a writing process for me. I do eventually kind of just have to sit down and kind of crunch it. And then through that process of telling, it gets smooth. It's a bit like the piece of the glass or the shell in the ocean. It kind of it 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 takes its shape. From the process of telling and amongst storytellers there's an expression saying that a story is never really born until it's told so until you share it with somebody else you know as much as you can practice it uh, yourself and because of uh covert we, we couldn't go out into the world and just be practicing it on people so we actually recorded the album first um which is a very back to front way in my experience of doing things because as a storyteller often i record albums to document collections of stories uh, that have been told for some time. Uh, yeah, so these were this was new material. it got recorded as an album. Uh, and then after that um, process, it was performed. And our recent tour where I met Chu to the South Island was really the first big run that we were able to have in the last two years of just telling the piece again and again and again and again which i think really settled the piece and and you know really shaped it and made it comfortably kind of or uncomfortably <laughs> sit
0: very well yeah a bit of both being the topic uh, yep, yep. It was a flawless performance in Fucker Fakatua Nelson. It was really—I was just blown away how you can keep all of that in your head and and it just—it flo- seems to flow out so naturally. Um, what did you learn while touring the show? Um, you know, you said it's sort of this shape really kind of solidified, I guess. But did did you make any little tweaks on the road or?
1: Yeah, I mean, this piece compared to some of my other storytelling pieces is is an incredibly crafted piece because there's kind of this complex um, complexity around a contemporary personal narrative being woven in amongst not only stories, but kind of commentary and reflection and music. Uh, Because quite often when I am performing pieces, even stories that I know quite well, one day I can tell them and have some kind of realization about the story that it hasn't occurred to me before. Um, sometimes that comes about as a, as um, a response to somebody's reaction to that story, or you know, just a kind of alignment of time and feelings, and uh, you know that that moment really. One of the things for me that I really love is having conversations with people after sharing the piece, uh, and you know, listening to to their reflections, uh, and that often does inform although it is a a crafted piece and people often ask me about a distinction between theatre and storytelling there is it's not like there is a line that I have to say each time I mean the stories form in the same way that a river kind of makes a path through land so the words make a shape um, in the shared landscape but it doesn't mean that the river can you know can't go somewhere else and uh and that with storytelling that's often what is the case when you kind of get a certain response um and that's in some ways less likely to happen in adult audiences because uh, adult audiences aren't really usually in in the um of the habit of kind of interrupting what we see as interrupting whereas children you know you'll be telling a story and suddenly a question occurs to them about what they've just heard (laughs) and they'll say but why you know, or, you know um, and that is the great gift that children bring is their why you know because you and I talk about this again in the piece it's like Toby's questions all these things that we take as givens you know why do things get old you know uh, why do you bury your dead it's like well you know you, you just think well we do it you know so it's what we've always done and we keep doing it but the 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 voice of which we do carry inside us of the four-year-old, that inquisitive voice that longs to understand and connect with the world that they live in, informs all the time about how a story is
0: told and 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 shared. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask you what's next, and then I've got my final question for you, um, <laughs> which is a, a very light-hearted one. So, yeah, so what's next for you?
1: Well, uh, I'm home on Waiheke Island now as we just spent two months away, which was wonderful to have that experience to be out in the world and sharing stories to real people again. Um, but So I'm actually doing a, a, quite a strong focus on um, teaching. Uh, I've got funding to uh, continue with a program I started last year, which is all about our relationship with our kai, with our food, um, in the in the Mara in the garden. And for me, the garden's been a great teacher and actually... As I spoke again around in the piece of Toby or not to be, you know, Toby and I spend a lot of time in the garden together. And so I, you know, often used metaphors from the garden to talk about things that happen in our lives. And, um, that's kind of the impetus, I guess, for the the piece of work that I'm doing here on the Island with the local tamariki here, knowing something about our food and our connection and learning from those bigger cycles that, um, we're part of, but in terms of um, thematically, in terms of death and dying, uh, this tour was a wonderful opportunity to connect with lots of incredible people, yourself included, who are doing the mahi in this area, out in our hapori in our communities, and uh, from you know death cafes through to compassionate communities to people who are you know really working to give us the skills to actually be able to help those that we love transition from life to death and to prepare ourselves for that experience as well so all of that has inspired and informed me to um, begin a death cafe here on Waiheke Island and that's going to um, very seasonally appropriately begin next month in June as we step into winter and step uh, towards Matariki as well so um yeah. That's, oh, that's, that's fantastic.
0: Maybe when you've got the details details finalised, you could share them with me and I can pop them up on my website um, because I do have a few listeners, I know of a few already who live in Waikiki, <laughs> and hopefully there will be many more soon. Mm. So my final question is, I ask this of everybody who I have on the show, is um as I'm putting together a playlist of what I'm calling farewell songs. So I ask each of my guests to nominate, and sometimes it's hard to nominate just one, but the first one that pops into your head, what is one song that you would really love played at your funeral or wake or the celebration of your life when you've gone? Can you think of one?
1: Oh, a song to sing. Obviously, I've not planned my funeral well enough. I actually have a whole book of instructions. Pete's certainly hoping he goes before I do because he's like, (laughs) I said, well, you want something to do, won't you, when I'm (laughs) gone, of course. Um, Well, uh, a particular song, uh, we have a group on the Eco Village um, and we meet every Monday night and we sing together. And I guess uh if i was to die tomorrow i would love that that group of people came and sung um at my farewell and we sing a, a beautiful maori waiata called um takumana so um it's a beautiful harmonized piece and i love the sentiment which speaks of the light that is in each one of us um, and and calls upon it. So yeah, Mm. I would probably love Takumana with my friends um, singing it. Uh, at my funeral if it should be tomorrow
0: <laughs> well I love I love that um for a storyteller how unique your answer is because I'm not going to find that song and that will that that particular <laughs> version of that song on on Spotify am I <laughs> so your song might have to be a mystery one in the Spotify <laughs> playlist <laughs> but yeah. that's wonderful thank you so much for joining me on the show today Tanya I've really enjoyed our kōrero and have a wonderful rest of your day
1: Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for the great mahi that you're doing.
0: You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name is Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been talking with Tanya Batt about her wonderful show, Toby or Not To Be. And now it's time for Death on Screen. And there's no surprises that today I'm going to be talking about Tanya's website, which is Imagined Worlds. And I will put the link up to that on my own website, Death Walker's Guide to Life. But if you want to find it, it's Imagined Worlds with a hyphen between the two words, dot net. And the website is a real treasure trove of all of Tanya's mahi. It's got information about all the different th- events that she's been involved in. You can download audio. You can buy the album of Toby or Not To Be and download the audio recordings. You can find out more about her own podcast, which is a story and a song, which she does with her partner, Peter Forster. And you can find out about upcoming events and the education work that she's doing. And in the interview, Tanya mentioned that she's about to start a death cafe in Wahiki Island, and that's going to be on the first Tuesday of every month at Ritual in Ostend in Wahiki Island, if you're in the vicinity. So as I mentioned, you can find out all about Tanya's work and her background, as well as by... The Toby Or Not To Be album on her website But she has very generously given me permission To play one of the tracks on today's show So this one is called, it's track number 7 And it is called Prince Ruddy Rice Ear And it's part of her way of responding to the question Why are our lives short? Once
1: long ago In the land of Japan, there lived a prince, Prince Ruddy Rice-Ear. Now, Prince Ruddy Rice-Ear, he was strong, and he was brave, and he was young, and he was virile, and he was in love. He had fallen in love with the beautiful princess blossoming as brilliantly as the trees. And such was his love that he went to her father, the great spirit of the mountain, to ask if he could marry her. And the great spirit of the mountain said, Very well, Prince Ruddy here, I will grant your request, upon one condition, that you take my other daughter, Princess As Long As The Rocks, also to be your wife. Well, Prince Ruddy Rice-Ear was a young man, so all he could think of was double the delights, and he agreed. Later, he was to discover that Princess, as long as the rocks, was as unpleasing to the eye as Princess, blossoming as brilliantly as the trees, was beautiful. And so, on the night of their wedding, when it came time to retire to their marital bed, Prince Ruddy Rice-Ear only princess blossoming as brilliantly as the trees and he shunned princess as long as the rocks. Princess as long as the rocks returned to her father complaining bitterly and the next day the great spirit of the mountain went and confronted Prince Ruddy Rysir. He said you have insulted me by rejecting my daughter But worse than that, you have brought a curse upon your own kind. For had you taken both my daughters to your bed, your offspring would have been as long-lived as they were youthful. But now your offspring will be as short-lived as the blossoms on the tree. And that is why, according to Japanese tradition, our lives are so short. The Japanese have an interesting word, wabi-sabi, which means the beauty of things in the process of decay. Not surprisingly, we don't have an equivalent word in English because in modern society we have no value of old age and the gifts that it brings. No, the mirror that we hold up to ourselves is a distorted one, the kind of mirror that you might find in a fun fair. one that shows Botoxed economies of endless growth, a society that values quantity of life over quality, lifetimes of perpetual summers, unblemished skin, a society that values doing over being a great caffeine-infused whirlwind where
0: there is little time for stillness and contemplation and that was tanya bat with prince ruddy ricea and some reflections on the metaphorical meaning of that story in today's modern world thank you so much for joining me for this episode of death walker's guide to life please remember to go to the website deathwalker's guide to life com for more information about my guest today, Tanya Bat, and all the other information we've talked about on the show. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa, see you next time. Fly away.